Nehemiah chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 19. This chapter in God's holy word, let's give our attention to it. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed now, strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. 
For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehonahan had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling me what I said, telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Beloved, in the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught his disciples, we have included these words. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And if in that Lord's prayer we are taught to pray daily for our bread, it's not unwarranted to think that this prayer regarding temptation should be a daily prayer as well. In Nehemiah chapter 6, after the internal struggles of Nehemiah chapter 5 were addressed, we once again, once again, read about trials and temptations facing Nehemiah and the people of God. And so from chapter 6, well, there's so many interesting details and, and questions that we may have carefully reading this chapter. We're going to consider it in an overarching way, looking first at the schemes of Satan in Nehemiah's day, then the responses of Nehemiah, and lastly, the results which came from God. The schemes of Satan, the responses of Nehemiah, and the results from God. Well, first, the schemes of Satan. And I use that language because in two places in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, and Ephesians 6, verse 11, we read about the devil's schemes. That's the language that's used. Now, there are two different Greek words in those two texts. But both those words are in the plural. Satan's schemes plural, his devices, plural, his methods, the one word could be transliterated, plural. Though he was defeated on the cross, the devil is still being permitted, according to God's sovereign will and purpose, to be active in his hatred against the Lord and his anointed, against the church as a whole and against individual Christians as well. And as we see in the days of Nehemiah, so we must know ourselves that the devil's schemes are many and varied. We see that, don't we, in the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. How in different ways the devil tried to come to tempt our Lord to sin, but he stood, boys and girls, He didn't fall for the devil's tricks as our righteousness, as the last Adam. He stood against all the devil's temptations. No matter how tricky he tried to be, Jesus stood firm. But here we see the many and varied schemes of Satan as well in Nehemiah chapter 6. The wall was almost completed. But like potential footholds for the adversaries, the gates were yet without doors. Just that last part that needed 
to be completed. And so the enemies are active. We see the aim of the enemies. In verse 2, it's, it's to harm Nehemiah. In verse 11, the language is to kill Nehemiah. And we see that the enemies have a particular attack here, don't they? A particular focus on Nehemiah himself. There's a focus on the leadership of the people of God. The very sobering and helpful passage in a work by Gardner Spring, who was a Presbyterian minister in New York City in the 1800s. He served in the same congregation for 62 years. He commented on this. He said, who and what are ministers? Frail men, fallible, sinning men, exposed to every snare, to temptation in every form. Yet from the very post of observation they occupy, they are an easier target for the fiery darts of the foe. They are not trite victims the great adversary is seeking when he would wound and cripple Christ's ministers. One such victim is worth more to the kingdom of darkness than a number of other men. For this very reason, their temptations are probably more subtle and severe than those encountered by ordinary Christians. If this subtle deceiver fails to destroy them, he cunningly aims at neutralizing their influence by quenching the fervor of their piety lulling them into negligence and doing all in his power to render their work burdensome. How perilous is the condition of that minister then whose heart is not encouraged, whose hands are not strengthened, who is not upheld by the prayers of his people. It is not in his own closet and on his own knees alone that he finds security and comfort and ennobling, humbling, and purifying thoughts and joys, but it is when they also seek them in his behalf that he becomes a better and happier servant, a more useful minister of the everlasting gospel. The pitfall of self-centeredness prevents me from expanding on that too much, but please pray for ministers and leaders in the church. Satan had his sights focused on Nehemiah here. Please pray. In verse 9, we see that some of the objects or intents of these schemes of the devil would be to instill the fear of man in Nehemiah, to distract him from the work, and to discourage Nehemiah and all the people from the work. They'd be happy with one or all of them. Verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. It'd be profitable to think there how sinful fear cripples us, in work for the Lord. How sinful anxiety diminishes our usefulness in the kingdom. Fear of man, distraction, discouragement from the work. But I want to point out what probably struck you as well. 
how repeated these attacks were. How repeated these attacks were. Uh, Look just there at the beginning, this invitation to come and meet in this, this village, more than a day's journey northwest of Jerusalem, far away from, from the work that Nehemiah had been called to. And in verse 4, we read, Four times they sent me the same message. And then in verse 5, And the fifth time it comes again, four times, even five. There are many things in life, I'm sure, that we may prefer to be one and done, as they say. I'll just face it once. And that's it. Let me just go to the dentist once. And that will be it for the rest of my life. There are many things that aren't that way. Most things, perhaps, are not that way. And it's not that way for most things in the Christian life. Certainly not when we think of the schemes of the devil and the spiritual warfare in which we all are engaged. It will be over and over and over and over again. Perhaps the same temptation over and over and over again. The devil doesn't get tired of beating on the same drum, hoping that we, like pestered parents, will finally give in. Do you have temptations, struggles in life that just go on and on and on? Well, don't be unaware of the devil's schemes. See his persistence in these things. And forewarned is forearmed. The fifth time we read that in addition to the invitation, there is a, an unsealed letter or an open letter that's deliberate so that As it travels to Nehemiah, anyone can see it, anyone can look at it, all the better for gossip and defamation of character. The intent of the letter is to accuse Nehemiah of being rebellious, that he's setting himself up as a king in Judah. I wonder if somehow, perhaps, they know enough of the word of God that they're perhaps even using scripture prophecies and suggesting that Nehemiah was seeing himself as Messiah. Because there is a coming king in Nehemiah's day. It wasn't Nehemiah, but a king was coming. It reminds us, as even Shakespeare said, the devil can quote scripture for his own purposes. It's out of context and misinterpreted and misapplied. But we too need to be careful. We thank the Lord again for his righteousness as he stood against the devil in the wilderness when the devil tried to use scripture against Christ in tempting him. We read here about Shemaiah, who gave false prophecies, this invitation to flee to the temple. It sounds so pious, but Nehemiah was not a priest. It would have been sinful for him. He says that later, uh, so that I would commit a sin By doing this, again, it was to succumb to the fear of man. And Shemaiah wasn't alone. There were other prophets and prophetesses like Noadiah who were trying to intimidate Nehemiah. Again, the fear of man is a snare. 
This is the great trap that they're laying for Nehemiah. In verses 17 and 19, again, the nobles that we considered in chapter 5. Because of marriage relationships that were taking precedence over the relationship they had with the people of God, they're causing trouble for Nehemiah. They are building up toward Nehemiah this, the character of Tobiah, but they are seeking just to intimidate Nehemiah as well. And in all these ways, it's just this temptation to Nehemiah to sin. Whether it was distraction or dereliction of duty or the fear of man or pride and rebellion, whatever it is, it's a temptation to sin. Verse 13, he tried to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. Boys and girls, the devil loves it when you sin. Shouldn't that make you think a little more about sin in your life? That it makes the devil smile? Before sin, as the Puritans used to say, the devil makes little of it in your life. Oh, it's just a little thing. But after we sin, he makes much of it. Look at what you've done. He is the diabolos, the slanderer, the accuser of the brethren. Nehemiah 6 is an encyclopedia of the schemes of Satan. And we would do well to learn from this chapter. But secondly, we want to look at the responses of Nehemiah. How did Nehemiah respond to the schemes of Satan through Senballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest? Well, the first and most important is that Nehemiah turned to prayer. Nehemiah turned to prayer. Verse 9. Although there's some translation question, uh, most translations see this as a prayer But I pray now, strengthen my hands. Lord, strengthen our hands. That's Nehemiah's prayer. He wasn't self-sufficient in his pride. He didn't say, I've got this. He prayed, and in his prayer, implicitly, he acknowledges and admits his personal weakness. You don't pray for strength if you think you're strong. You pray for strength when you know you're weak. Nehemiah knew it. As great a a leader among the people of God as he was, he knew his weakness, that he was not up to the task. Who is sufficient for these things? That's what a gospel minister says. That's what Paul asks. But every Christian... Ask that about the Christian life. Who is sufficient for this? Lord, strengthen our hands. He mentions hands particularly, and some have focused in on that. Not just mental strength or emotional strength or just spiritual strength, but strengthen our hands, that the strength in all these other areas would would bear good fruit in practical ways that we'd really live out our faith. 
that we would put into practice the things that we know, that we would bless others and serve God. And it's wonderful that in the Bible, we see God as the one who in Christ Jesus strengthens his people. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will live securely, declares the Lord, Zechariah 10, 12. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's not easy to admit your weakness. It's hard, and for some of you it's harder than for others to say, I can't do this. But none of us can do it. It's not completely wrong just to come to that point where you just... It can be wrong if it, if it goes into despair. But just to stop and say, I can't do this, is not spiritually unhealthy. Because it's true. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so it's a good thing to say, I can't do this, if you turn, not away from the Lord, but to the Lord, and pray. As Paul prays in Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that we, by God's grace, would be able to say with Paul in Philippians 4.13, I can do All this through him who gives me strength. In that great passage in Ephesians on spiritual warfare, where the devil's schemes are mentioned, Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Nehemiah also responds in prayer in verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sembalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Both these prayers, one writer calls them swift appeals to God, another short, intense arrow prayers. They're not long, but they're weighty. Just remember Tobiah and Sabalat, that's what he says. You know what they've done, I'll leave it with you. That's the way he, he prays about his enemies there. Again, someone said, a prayer for resolve to do the right thing, strengthen my hands, and to leave the outcome, whether reward or punishment, to God. Don't take revenge, beloved, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Leave it with the Lord. We see a prayer, though not alone. We see prayer with a commitment to priorities. Nehemiah wasn't deflected from his calling and work. 
So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Uh, We need to pray for the wisdom to know the right priorities and to prioritize our priorities in life and not to get so easily distracted and deflected from them. Nehemiah says, I have a great work to do. You may think, well, if I was building the walls of Jerusalem, you'd probably be more serious about what you're saying this afternoon. <laughs> but who am I and what, have I, what am I doing? And that's to look at, at your life, at a Christian's life, from a, a worldly point of view. You have to look at it from a heavenly point of view. Who was the only one that noticed the widow putting the two pennies in the offering and saying she gave more? Jesus did. You have a calling as a Christian. You have work to do. And it's a great work. And it's an important work because God's given it to you to do. It may be a very obscure work that hardly anyone sees. It may be a thankless work that the world doesn't recognize. But if God has given it to you, it's a great work. It is. On June 3rd, 1944, a young woman named Maureen Flavin did what she always did during the Second World War. She was working overnight in Western Ireland when she completed one of her daily tasks at 1 a.m., examining the air pressure and the barometer readings and reporting them to the meteorological office in Dublin. According to one historical article, what Marine didn't know was that this information from the most westerly station in Europe was being sent to the headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force in England and would land on the desk of the United States four-star general Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was then the supreme commander of the combined Allied forces. This information convinced the meteorologists in General Eisenhower's office that it was wise to postpone Operation Overlord, what later became known as D-Day, to postpone it for 24 hours, and that the Allies should stand down all associated activities until the weather cleared. And this break in the weather, which Maureen Flavin also reported, allowed the invasion to go ahead on June 6th. She was recently in June of this this, this past June, recognized for her work, 98 years old. Someone commentating, commenting on this historical vignette said to me, what a good illustration for how often we don't realize the importance of our actions, no matter how small they may seem, or how small repetitive actions may seem worthless, but we never know when it might be important. 
Don't give up your great work for God. Whatever it is, don't get distracted or deflected. Well, there's so much we could say. Nehemiah was also very aware of his identity, wasn't he? Nehemiah 6, verse 11. Should a man like me run away? Not just the situation, but who he was in that situation was important. Should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. A man like me, he understood his identity, that he was a servant of God and a child of God. Remember in the hour of temptation who you are. This was the temptation even to our Lord in the wilderness as our righteousness. If you are the Son of God. And Jesus said no to the devil because he was the Son of God. Remember who you are as a Christian. The Spirit of God does not... The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1, 7. Nehemiah, as a servant and child of God, feared God more than he feared man. Verse 13, he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. He wouldn't enter the temple to save his life. He feared God. He feared sin. That I would sin by doing this, he said. Reminds me of Joseph, though Joseph did run away, but for the same reason, so that he wouldn't sin. Is giving into temptation a true reflection of who we are in Christ? Someone asked. There's nothing more helpful in your life, day by day and moment by moment, that according to the word of God, remembering who you are, in Jesus Christ. We see also, there's so many things we could pick out here. I just love the wise rebuttal of verse 8. The wise rebuttal. You want to become king, all this? I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. I love that. It's just calling it for what it is. That's wrong. That's not true. You're making it up. Don't do that. It's not always necessary to, to engage people in a, in a huge thing when what they're saying is just completely false and ridiculous. It reminds me of Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. But don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. May God give us the wisdom to know the difference. Well, lastly, and just briefly, we see also here the results from God. And the results are twofold, aren't they? The first is just what we've been waiting for for so long. Verse 15. So the wall was completed. The wall was completed. I hope we have a day like that soon in our congregation with our building. 
And we can, we can think of Nehemiah 6.13. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elah in 52 days. Well, maybe not that aspect, but the wall was completed. Not just because of Nehemiah. This completing of the wall of Jerusalem, like the completing of the temple before it, is an illustration of the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's what we should read when we think about when we read those words, and the wall was completed. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. And that in Christ, and because of Christ, What Paul says in Romans 16, 20 is true of the church in every age. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. But there's also another result here that's really quite remarkable. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. That's so encouraging, so amazing. What a testimony to God's grace and to God's glory that it was undeniable even to the enemies of God. Oh, that we would live lives that held forth the undeniability of the grace of God in us. That we would be a congregation that would proclaim the undeniability that our God reigns and that he saves and that he strengthens and changes and can bring a bunch of sinners together into one family and behold how they love one another. How we pray that people would see Christ in us and among us. And be brought to humility and faith. Not just a recognition that God did it, but to be brought to faith through that. Because as Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. One writer said, isn't this a helpful perspective on our temptations? Think how God will be glorified when we come through them. The very ferocity of the opposition will bring even more honor to God when he enables us to overcome it. If you are being severely tested, the Lord is using you to win a mighty victory. Beloved, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.